Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You know, when it comes to electricity, it's pretty clear demand is going to increase, skyrocket, arguably, in the coming years. The big impetus for that is is the push to electric vehicles. The federal government has some very specific and ambitious targets regarding electric vehicles. And, and in other respects, too, the, the demand is going to increase. You know, at the same time, there's a, a focus on the grid and its contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and, and how we try to decarbonize the grid. You know, in Alberta, for example, more than half of our electricity comes from natural gas. Now, certainly, I think natural gas represents an improvement over coal. But if we're going to start to phase out natural gas as well, are, are we shrinking the supply at a time when demand is going to increase? So how do we ensure that we're upgrading, we're expanding the electricity grid as we move forward here? Does that mean more nuclear? Does that mean other strategies? So what is the challenge we face and, and how do we meet it? It was the topic of an interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail the other day, co-authored by our guest here this morning, Christopher Reagan, founding director of McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy and former chair of Canada's Eco-Fiscal Commission. Christopher, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So what is the challenge right now as, as you see it? Well, your intro was great. Um, <laughs> the challenge, I think, is to make a gradual transition away from uh, you know, electricity that is uh, generated by burning fossil fuels toward electricity that is, um, that is cleaner. And so it's not just about producing more electricity, although I think that's going to be necessary as we use more electric vehicles and probably as we use more electric furnaces, for example, rather than uh, burning natural gas. But I think it's also about building a grid um, that is that is bigger and better a grid that we can you know we can sell wind power into it we can sell solar power into the grid the grid probably has to uh, have east west ties across provinces because some provinces are going to have the ability to produce more clean power but maybe we want to be able to ship some of that electricity to the provinces either to the east or the west that have less of that ability so uh, you know, there's it's kind of an expansion and improvement in our overall electricity system, uh, and that's a, that's a big challenge. That's and I think the, the question that, that we were addressing in this op-ed is, you know, how is that going to happen, and who's going to pay for it? Right. Well, those are two big questions. I mean, on, on the <laughs> latter, I guess there's, I mean, there's the jurisdictional issues uh, around right. electricity infrastructure, but that doesn't preclude other levels of government for financially contributing to to whatever needs to change so who who takes the lead who's got responsibility right. here right so electricity is 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 a natural resource that's completely within the provincial uh, provincial jurisdiction and so you might say that the that the kind of easy answer to the 
who is going to pay for it question is, well, different provinces are going to do this, right? They're running their electricity systems the way they are. In some cases, these are privatized. In some cases, these are still provincially government-owned. But your answer might just be, well, uh, the province will handle this on its own, uh, and it will uh, devote public money, or it will raise rates on electricity so that rate payers then pay more to actually improve the electrical system within the province. And that's, I think, not a bad starting answer. But then you kind of say, well, there's obstacles for that. Um, it, you, you know as well as I do, and, and I think your listeners will certainly know, that when electricity rates go up, to actually uh, finance improvements in the grid or improvements in the electricity system, that's fairly unpopular. And uh, so, so if there's if there's a, a way to do that without raising rates, that might be good. The other thing is that um, you know the country is bigger than any one province, and there are national objectives that we are trying to achieve. There are national objectives in terms of of cleaning up the electricity system, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, getting eventually to net zero by 2050. Those are national objectives, and of course, those are a, are a small part of global objectives. And so, um, what at the heart of this column that we wrote was that, well, we have a federal government that, of course, wants to achieve this national objective of net zero by 2030. So why couldn't the federal government assist provinces in financing their electricity improvements in the same way that the federal government provides some funding to provinces to finance or partially finance uh, their healthcare systems or what we've seen very recently, uh, financing to provide, provide childcare. So there's national objectives, and that actually speaks to at least the possibility that the feds would stand ready to provide funding to provinces that would that would allow them to expand their electricity systems and improve their electricity systems without relying solely on rate increases. And that's what we call electric federalism. I'm not sure whether you like that term or not. I don't know whether it's going to end up being a great bumper sticker, but that's what we call it in the column. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I do wonder, are we going about this backward? I mean, it seems like we're... we're bringing forward initiatives that are going to drive demand and and supply seems like the afterthought. I mean, does it need to be the other way around or does this need to be more at the same time? Like, uh, how are we going about this in your view? I think that's a great question. And look, I, I think we need to do both. So I think, for example, you know, we need to encourage and this is exactly what a carbon price does, by the way. So we now have a carbon price that that exists in all parts of this country. Sometimes it's a provincial policy. Sometimes it's a federal policy. But we have a carbon price uh, in all parts of the country. And that, the, the whole logic of a carbon price is that it makes it more expensive 
to emit greenhouse gases. So it, it produces an incentive to, you know, buy your next car as an electric car rather than a, a, a gas a gas burning car, or it provides an incentive to swap out your oil burning furnace with an electric furnace. So that's changing things on the demand side. But at the same time, we need to make sure that the supply of the cleaner alternatives are there. So we need to expand the production of clean electricity. Now, carbon price also does send those incentives, but but we might need more than just the carbon price on this. And so I think we ought to be working on demand and supply at, at, at the same time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to do it. And especially when supply, back to the earlier point, the supply is really managed uh, by different provinces. And so if there are obstacles to provinces improving their electricity grids, then the question is, is there, is there some nudge that could be provided by the feds? Now, when it comes to wind and solar, and, and you know, certainly the, the capacity has been expanded here in Alberta, for example, but it, yep. it, it feels like there's a, a limit to that, the, you know, in terms of, you know, the abundance of, of that power in, in downtimes. It, it still represents a fairly small overall percentage of, of Alberta's electricity generation. Yep. I can't speak to other provinces. So how realistic is it to, to have a greater reliance on wind and solar as we're trying to expand this capacity? Well, that's another great question. So I'm, I'm actually Albertan, um, and so I spend some time, and I love being uh, down in the Crow's Nest Pass near Pincher Creek, where there's lots of uh, these wind farms. Uh, but you're right, there is, a, um, there is kind of a limit to how much power we can generate by wind. There's a limit to how much power we can generate by solar, because, of course, solar takes up space that might otherwise be useful land. Um, and this is why, and you said this in your introduction, you, you wondered whether we would have to build more nuclear power. Well, I, you know, I think that's very much on the table. And especially if we are able to develop what are called small modular reactors, SMRs, mm-hmm. um, instead of huge, these, you know, enormous uh, nuclear generating stations, if we can, if we can actually build nuclear power and do it in, uh, in, in small modular units, then I think that should be considered and I think it will be considered. Um, but there's also, you know, the production of hydrogen, perhaps. So I think this is one of the, you know, kind of one of the big questions, and I would say one of the question marks over the next 30 years is, what does our electricity system or our energy system more generally look like 30 years from now? I think the answer is we don't, we don't know. I don't think we know whether there will be a massive use of, of a nuclear small modular reactors or whether there will be a massive development of hydrogen. I think what we do know is that our electricity system will be cleaner, will be less emitting 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now than it is now. Because the fundamental objective, I think, is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to take those out of our energy system. So I think we don't know exactly what technologies are going to kind of win the race, and I suspect it will be a bunch of a, a bunch of several of the technologies, but I think we don't really know, except for the fact that they will probably be less emitting, significantly less emitting. Well, with regard to nuclear, and, and I think there's real potential, especially as I mentioned with small nuclear, rea- uh, small modular reactors, but as you're well aware, not everybody agrees that nuclear falls into Correct. the clean energy category. So how do we resolve that debate? So <laughs> you're full of good questions today, Rob. So I, look, I think uh, nuclear has its own sort of baggage and it's got its own sort of special baggage. Uh, there are many people in Canada that do not think we should be expanding nuclear. But if if you think the fundamental problem that we've got to solve is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a very, very serious way, then let's at least recognize that nuclear power does not generate greenhouse gas emissions. Now, it does, you know, have uh, spent fuel that has radioactivity issues, but 
you know, for four decades, this country has been producing nuclear power, a lot of it in Ontario, and it's been doing it extremely safely. So I think I think we've got to actually recognize that nuclear power has been incredibly safe in this country and in most other countries, uh, even though there are some, I think, hang-ups against it. Now, I'm not just advocating nuclear power at the expense of other things, but I think we've got to we should not be taking options off the table uh, unless there's a very good reason. And I don't think there's a good reason to be taking that off the table. So given that we have, for example, hard targets for electric vehicle sales in Canada, do we need to get to a point here where we've got some hard targets in terms of upgrading, changing the electricity grid, that we need to get to X by Y, et cetera? Well, so this actually gets you to quite a good debate among uh, policymakers and people who think about kind of the analysis of policy about whether you can provide incentives or whether you need to actually provide binding, uh, you know, binding uh, limits or binding constraints. Now, I'm a I'm a big believer that the incentives that are produced through something like a carbon price are very effective. So the carbon price today is uh, $50 per ton of greenhouse gas emissions, but that carbon price is going to start rising Starting this year, it's going to start rising by $15 per ton every year, so it will be $170 per ton by 2030. I think that rising carbon price sends a very powerful signal um, to, you know, next time you swap out your furnace, you swap it out with an electric one. Next time you buy a new car, you buy an electric one or maybe a hybrid. Uh, You know, and it, it sends powerful incentives to actually change the 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 type of appliances we use to change the nature of the energy that we produce. Um, and so I actually think those incentives are quite powerful. And the modeling that we did at the Ecofiscal Commission was that a carbon price of about about $200 a ton, so that's only a little higher than 170 could achieve most of the emissions reductions that we're trying to achieve by 2030. So um, <clears throat> the current federal government, um, has adopted a carbon price that's not quite that aggressive, but pretty close, $170 by 2030. And it's going to achieve most of the emissions reductions we want by 2030. But then to fill the gap, they're introducing other policies. So I think this issue is is quite live about to what extent can we rely on the carbon price and to what extent do we have to put other policies in place that tend to be a little bit more intrusive. They tend to be a little bit more prescriptive, telling industry what they have to do and when they have to do it. But I actually think the flexibility uh, that comes with a carbon price is a real advantage. Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Reagan, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Appreciate the conversation.